Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money. My name's Glenn James and today we're talking about investing, we're talking about ESG, ethical, we're talking about women as fund managers, we're talking about active managed funds. We're just going to see where we can go with this chat. I'm joined today by Kate Howard. For the fourth time, Kate has been named in CityWise list of the top 30 female fund managers in the world ranking 11th out of 1,762 female active managers, scoring 286 points. Don't know what that means, but we'll go there. Kate has been managing the Fidelity Australian Opportunities Fund since 2000 and... 2012 for the fund. Awesome. 2012. She's been with Fidelity since... 2004. Kate, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thanks, Glenn. Great to be here. Now, are you ready to go deep and talk about all the things... Yeah, there's lots to talk about. All right, let's get it on. Now, Kate, you've seen a lot in moving money over the last 10, 12, 20 years, like you've been in the industry for some time. Can you give us just a snapshot of maybe how you started getting into managing money? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I did a liberal arts degree. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I would have said at, you know, 18 years old, I would have said finance was the last place I would end up. That wasn't me at all. I was not a kind of wheeler dealer type. Um, But I got halfway through this degree and thought, wow, I actually need something that is going to earn me some money rather than just continuing to work in restaurants. Um, So I went off and got myself an MBA. And after that, I uh, worked in consulting uh, with the Boston Consulting Group uh, back here in Sydney. I'd, I'd done my education in the US and I came back. Uh, then I moved into AMP at around the time that AMP demutualized and listed. Uh, AMP 2000s? Asked me, uh, that was in 97, uh, 98. 98, yes. Yeah, 98 was the listing. Yep. And um, uh, then they asked me to work on investor relations which is working with big investors and stockbrokers, and I really didn't know much about that. Uh, And then after a couple of years of that, I thought, well, that's really interesting, uh, and I'd really like to be on that side of it. So within AMP, I transferred over to the AMP Capital part uh, and uh, became an analyst and portfolio manager. And then a couple of years after that, Fidelity decided to open up a local operation and um, headhunted me across, and um, that was 2004 and, and been there ever since, and such an exciting and interesting role. Uh, and I really, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful and thrilled that I've ended up doing this for so long. Now, Fidelity, like for those who might not know of the brand and of the company, huge international investment company. I mean, when did they start? hundred years ago? No, not quite. The The original Fidelity Management and Research began in the US uh, in the 
think 1947, uh, around then. And then the Fidelity International part um, that I'm part of, the non-US bit, uh, was founded in the late 1960s. But we are one of the largest active managers. There are, there are very large um, passive index managers now, uh, you know, running trillions of dollars. Fidelity International itself uh, runs hundreds of billions of dollars, um, but we are mostly active. We have 400 investment professionals around the world. Uh, we do thousands of company meetings every year to get really close to the companies that we invest in. In the money world, like I'm in this personal finance world and it's all low cost index ETFs. I think, you know, I've let in a wolf today. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like, and we will get into the whole active thing, but, you know, Spiva has all the data that, you know, 80% of uh, fund managers will do worse than the, just buying the index. And particularly, I think, as that I'm saying this, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you probably don't care because you're not in the 80%, but I think the Australian index um, or Australian active funds, yeah, 80% underperformed the index over the last five years. So the question is, like, where are some fund managers going wrong? Yeah, so um, markets are um, what's called semi-efficient. So they will at various points reflect fair value of companies and sometimes they don't. And that's what creates opportunities. You get some companies overvalued, some companies undervalued. Um, but uh, there's nothing mechanistic that makes companies go back to fair value. So um, when you make an investment on a certain thesis, um, sometimes it plays out and sometimes it doesn't. So we've been tracking our analysts. We ask them to rate stocks and we've been tracking them for decades. And on our numbers, our analysts get it right maybe 55, 56% of the time. And you would say, well, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that's, that's barely above it's 50, a flip 50. Of a coin, yeah. Yeah. But, um, generally, um, you know, the random walk of markets is just a 50, 50 flip, flip of the coin. So, you know, what What the job of the portfolio manager at Fidelity is to take that 55-45 odds, which are better than 50-50 odds, and use that to build a portfolio to do better than the index through time. But there's a second objective to funds management, which we hardly ever talk about, right? So mostly we talk about generating returns for unit holders. But societally, the other thing that we do is we're allocating capital into the economy, so when we buy a stock, what we're saying is this is a great business. Uh, it deserves the capital to be able to expand and grow. And when we sell a company, we're saying, well, that's you know not a great business. Um, it should pay a high price for its capital. It should be harder for this company to access capital. And so we are, um, you know, participants in the invisible hand of the market, making sure that capital flows to where it can be most effective in generating returns and in you know improving living standards, uh, providing economic goods and services that people value. Um, active managers putting funds to work is, is actually at the coalface of how that happens. So you're uh, the portfolio manager of the Fidelity Australian Opportunities Fund. Now, looking in, you're searching for opportunities. Now, is that small cap opportunities? Is it micro cap? Are you putting money into pre-IPO stuff? What opportunities are we looking for? Yeah, so so we did call it opportunities to reflect that I kind of want to be able to go anywhere in Australia. So, I have colleagues running global 
money and they have thousands of stocks in their opportunity set that they can choose from. I'm running Australia, so I am limited to things that are listed on the ASX. Um, and the key benchmark there is the ASX 200. So I'm constructing a portfolio from 200 stocks, although I look you know, at maybe four or 500 stocks, but there's a very long tail of small stocks. Uh, and so I think that, that Australia is so narrow that you want to be able to buy large, medium, small, micro wherever the opportunity is. You want to be able to buy growth stocks. You want to be able to buy value stocks. Um, you want to be able to buy all the different sectors of the market. So it's really been set up as a kind of go anywhere fund within Australia. So I've got a real mix. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got some of the largest companies like BHP and CBA. And then I've got some, some really, really small companies in there too, kind of all the way through. Um, because I want it to be a kind of one-stop shop uh, there are uh, planners who put their clients into my fund because uh, maybe their clients don't have a huge amount and so they don't want to do a sophisticated kind of, oh, well, I'll get a large cap manager and I'll get a smaller mid cap manager, I'll get a value manager, I'll get a growth manager. They just say, look, I, I can only really justify one allocation. I'll put it here as a one-stop shop and I'll get a little bit of everything. So just looking at um, the fund and just full disclosure, everybody, I've invited Kate on because uh, we talked at a, uh, on a panel at an Australian Financial Review event. I like what Kate had to say both at the event and in the meetings before uh, our panel. And it's this episode is not paid by Fidelity or Kate, although I do take cash. Um, <laughs> so the fund, and I'm just genuinely curious. Uh, so the fund has, you know, about half a billion dollars AU. Yes. So that's in the retail fund. I also manage money uh, for institutions. So I've got some very large uh, superannuation, you know, so some of the largest superannuation funds have given me allocations. And I've got also got uh, some funds uh, from other institutional clients, including some from overseas wanting to invest into Australia. Uh, so all up in the, the one strategy, uh, I manage around $2 billion. Yeah. Wow. Do you ever get nervous? Uh, I have always um, tried to think about it in terms of basis points. That's that's the language that we use, um, which is, you know, a percent of a percent. Um, and I find that that makes it a bit less scary than thinking about the actual dollar amount. Yeah, just on that, because I want to use this as an educational podcast as well. So, when we hear fundies talk about basis points, so if I said to you, oh, the fund is 85 basis points, what's that? Right. So, um, my fund uh, has its net assets uh, and then we look at a percent of those and uh, then I will allocate those into the various funds. And so, I um, am aware of the index and so I am thinking about owning more than the index or less than the index. So, the largest companies like BHP and CBA are very large in the index and so I've got several percent of the fund in those. But when you're looking at a really small early stage company that I think is promising but is still fairly high risk, I might only put 30 basis points of the fund. Uh, so that's, you know, one third of 1% of the total assets of the fund going into this really small company. So I have a range of bet sizes in the fund, um, something that is larger and more reliable, I feel more comfortable owning more of, something that's smaller, might have a lot of upside, but also could have a lot of downside. I really want to limit how much exposure there is to that. So if you were to put 10 basis points into a company, for everyone out there, that would be 0.10%. 
uh, that would be 0.1%. 10 basis points would be 0.1%. Yes. Yep. Awesome. You mentioned... Or, you know, in my case, that'd be about $2 million. Yeah. Wow. Do you want to put any basis points into the podcast business? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As soon as you're listed on the ASX... With some really good prospects, then yep, yep, happy to take and, a look. I'll come and give you an opportunity. Um, we might finish up on the fun because I just think it's fascinating. So, Australia is basically, in terms of the market, it's a big dirt hole and a bank. <laughs> so, you got about 26% in financials. Um, you know, there could be, you know, 17% in materials and, you know, 12 into healthcare. Like, how are you navigating the fact that the Australian market is so heavy in, you know, brown dirt, coal, yeah. all that stuff? Or as, as, one, as one CEO said to me, in Australia, we dig things up and we sell coffees to each other. Yeah. That's basically our economy. Um, well, from an investment point of view, let me just put that in context. Um, a bank called Credit Suisse uh, does a yearbook of returns. They look at very, very long-term re- returns. So they've been looking at a series of markets and the returns that you get for over a century. And what they found is Australia has been one of the top performing markets over a century, right? That just seems crazy. We sit here going, we're not a big economy like the US or Japan. We're not a tech economy like the US. You know, like the little battler. Why would the little battler do so well? And when you decompose it, what you see is that um, stock prices go up, stock prices go down. You get bull markets, you get bear markets. The most reliable form of return is dividends. And Australia has had a really high dividend return for a really long time. And that ballast in the market um, actually has delivered really great returns. So we all worry about a home market bias. And if I'm a serious investor, I need to be investing offshore. Well, actually, investing in Australian shares has a really good track record as delivering good income, relatively low volatility, and just compounding returns over time. Mm. So I just, I just want to put that out there, like, you know, you know digging up stuff and, and banking has actually, you know, delivered well mm. um, for people who've been invested along for the ride. And we will get to the whole digging up bad stuff and good stuff and all that around the ethical ESG stuff. Uh, And just finishing on your fund, um, I always crap on here on the podcast that, you know, don't open your app and you're like, oh, I did 30% over the last 12 months. I'm going to put all my money in there or, you know, oh, you can invest in this micro investing app or that one because, and this is my, if I can go on a rant, it's all a marketing game online and all these um, funds and micro investing apps, they're all advertising the last 12 month return rate as this big hook. Now, forget all that crap. Let's look what a growth fund did over the last five to seven years. Yeah. So, after, over the last seven years, your fund has pumped out 10.5%, say. Um, seven and a half ish of that has been growth, 3.2 ish has been income. So, I guess I'm just looking at the benchmark here. You've had a 2%, I guess you call it an active return Mm. above the benchmark. Mm. So you have outperformed the benchmark after fees. Yep. Yep. So, but hang on, shouldn't I just invest everything into the the index fund? Well, yeah. what are you doing Look, to me? You reckon my you, show you're, here? You're asking me to talk my own book, which yeah. is active management. Yeah. 
And so we are an active manager and we think that there are returns uh, to active management. The way we do it is, uh, you know, what's known as bottom up, which means we have 400 of us going around and talking to companies all year long, trying to figure out what's what's changing and what's getting better. Um, Where are companies innovating? Um, Where are they building their competitive advantage? Where are they expanding their returns? And then using that as the key input into the fund. Now, there are other Active approaches like top-down and macro, uh, where you're trying to, you know, judge is inflation going up or down, um, you know, is the US dollar going up or down. We we don't think we're particularly good at that. Um, so we just we just focus on, you know, generating alpha out of stock-specific opportunities. And we've we've got a long heritage. We don't outperform over all timescales, um, but you know, we we have a, a good track record of delivering for clients. Would you say because uh, we hear in the fundy world, um, high conviction, you know, are you a high conviction manager and what does that mean? Do you, in your, um, I guess, PDS for the fund, do you say, well, there will always be 20% in cash? Like, just talk to us about that part of it. Yeah, so I, I keep a very low allocation to cash because people who are investing money with me and paying fees for active equity exposure are not giving me money to put it in cash. If they want cash, they'll keep that money in cash. So I, I keep the fund fully invested. Um, I am not what's known as a concentrated or a high conviction. And it's because I like having a fairly long tail of these small bets in really small positions. So if I, um, so I generally run, um, you know, maybe 50 stocks in the portfolio, 50 something. Um, if I only had uh, 20 or 25 names, then mathematically each of those have to be quite big swings. So, you know, I'd have to have, you know, what is that yeah. on average kind of 4% in the fund. Um, but I like to have a range of names that are, might only be around 30 or 50 basis points. So, mm. you know, half a percent, a third of a percent in the fund, um, which gives me the potential to go into small early stage things that are not de-risked enough to warrant a really large position, but could potentially grow to that stage. So, um, I, I haven't found that a concentrated approach is the one that works best for me. And I think that's really important for anyone who's investing. There's no one right magic answer. Fidelity doesn't have a house style or a house process. We don't say the one way to outperform is to do this. We say that um, people are going to deliver the best returns that they can when they do it the way that makes sense to them. Mm. So, you know, don't try to be Warren Buffett. Don't try to be Joel Greenblatt. Do what you know you can do well. For me, um, that's uh, focusing on stock specifics and having a range of opportunities in the portfolio, not forcing myself to, to take just a handful of big bets. Yeah, that's, um, that's crazy. Wild. Love it. And this is the whole thing, like my mind's going all these places and I'll just try and not be you know, all over the place. Like, do you have much of a tight leash with the board, directors, or are you just accountable to your investors in your pot of money? Um, so I, yeah, I'm accountable to my clients. Um, and so um, for the retail fund, um, that is uh, essentially um Speaking, speaking to people in fidelity, you know, we have what's called a quarterly fund review where I sit down with um, the head of the team that does analytics on our funds and I sit down with the chief investment officer and we go through every quarter. What do you own in the fund? And we look at, I mean, we've got, you know, a 50-page pack of charts uh, that, you know, the analytics guys go through very carefully to make sure really that 
what is in the tin is what's on the label. So what I say that I'm going to buy for clients is that the sort of thing I'm delivering. Now, the actual names are changing all the time. I'm buying, I'm selling, but am I delivering the same sorts of position sizing, the same sorts of opportunities? Are there any unintended risk exposures in there? We spend a lot of time to make sure that what we are doing is is an appropriate product to, to put out there for clients. Then with my institutional clients, they want to meet with me every quarter. And they are, they're running their own analytics mm. and they want to say, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? What are you thinking? What opportunities do you see? They're kind of doing ongoing due diligence to make sure that they're comfortable that I'm a, a fit steward of, the, of their client's capital. Would you say in your line of work as a fund manager, longevity equals must be doing a good job? Oh, yeah, there's definitely survivorship bias. Yeah. But, you know, one of the, one of the crazy things is you don't, necessarily get better with experience. Mm. So, um, you know, I made some of my best calls when I was just starting out. Um, And so, we can hire a new analyst and if they're really diligent, they can uncover an opportunity um, that more seasoned investors um, are overlooking. Mm. And I'll have an analyst come to me and say, Kate, this, you know, you need to invest in this business. I go, oh, no, that's terrible business. I've, you know, I've seen that for a decade. It's no good. And they'll say, well, actually at this price, that's a really good opportunity and it's not as bad as it used to be and it's better than you think it is. And they'll update me and refresh my view. Um, and so there's no, you know, it's not the kind of thing where the longer you do it necessarily, the better and better you get. Uh, you, there is that natural thing where um, if you're not doing well, then, you know, you probably won't end up sticking around so long. Mm. So you do get survivorship bias. Yeah. Um, but um, you have to be humble about it. You know, the market uh, can, can, you know, humiliate very seasoned investors uh, you know, just as much as a, a novice. Uh, we will move on. Um, your portfolio, if someone's listening like, oh, I want a bit of Kate's action and all this stuff, well, you got to rock up with 50 grand basically. <laughs> well, we, so the retail fund that we have... Um, you know, Australia has had the structure where you go to a financial planner and the financial planner will put you into a range of funds that are appropriate for you. Um, we are improving those structures. Uh, there's some great innovations. You can now do active ETFs. And this has taken a lot of work with the regulator and the stock exchange to put this structure in place. There's some challenges around it um, and to make sure that they can't be gamed, basically. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the industry locally has sorted that out. And so now you're starting to see active ETFs. So this is really great evolution because you can you can uh, buy in without needing financial planning. You just, you know, you go to your broker, um, whoever you use to place ASX trades and you can buy the fund. Now my, my particular fund, we haven't put uh, into an active ETF structure yet. Um, you know, maybe at some point in the future we will. We do have other funds. We have a great um, emerging markets fund. So that's a, you know, you want opportunity to the growth markets uh, of less developed economies around the world. Uh, it's a really, you know, simple way you can go and buy that active ETF. And what's important there is that governance standards in emerging markets uh, can be quite problematic. And so our very company-specific approach is really big on, on governance due diligence, making sure that these are legit companies that are actually being managed in the interests of shareholders, not just for cross-ownership or some other kind of thing. So that active ETF structure um, is a way that people can um, stick with the kind of flexibility 
of uh, ETFs, ease of trading, ease of getting in and out, but can also uh, ac- access something that is a bit more actively managed than just, uh, a th- you know, maybe a quantitative or algorithmically derived collection of stocks. Yeah, and we've just seen recently one of the oldest dogs in town, uh, Perpetual, they just move uh, one of their funds to an active um, ETF. And this is great, right? This is, you know, everything in the world is getting more convenient. You can, you know... Tap, and all tap. the gatekeepers are being removed. Yes, yeah, so you can tap, tap, swipe on your phone to do so many things now. It should be the same for being able to invest in high quality products, right? What you don't want is that, you know, you can do tap, tap, swipe and do all kinds of crazy things with your money. We want to also make sure that there are some, you know, really great high quality options that are really accessible and convenient. Yeah, and this is the whole thing. I, I think it is more... Not that the secret money world is secret because, you know, money people will want as much money to manage as possible, but it just gets to the point where it's like, well, it's not practical to take $500 to come into the fund because of the paperwork and all that. But I think as technology does advance, we will start to see more funds be an Exactly. ETF. Yeah, definitely. That is exactly true. The industry used to be all these paper-based applications. It was really cumbersome, not user-friendly. Mm. And so now, like so many other industries, you get um, digital startups that show, you know, how easy it can be and Mm. start to disrupt. And then it makes the incumbents go, oh, wait a minute, maybe we can come up with a a better way of doing it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. We're going to talk about two very interesting topics. And if you want to learn more about Fidelity, you can Google Fidelity Australia and have a look on their website. But um, at the risk of turning this into a Fidelity ad, I'm going to stop there and (laughs) let's now, um, let's talk about some wild things. So we'll be right back after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, we are back. Kate Howard, let's talk a couple of things. Let's start with women as fund managers in this man's world. Oh, it's so true. We, um, you mentioned at the start uh, the CityWire uh, rankings. So CityWire um, 
keep a database of all the professional money managers in the world um, that you know that they're aware of. Uh, they do it across equities and bonds, uh, so not just stock markets, but also the bond market, which is quite a bit bigger than the stock market. Um, and of that, um, they come up with somewhere around uh, twelve or thirteen thousand, of which uh, you know twelve or thirteen hundred are women. So we're running at around 10%, or actually it's kind of creeping up, we're getting maybe 12%. So um, there are initiatives um, to try to get to 30% of women on boards, um, and the ASX is is doing quite well, and we're getting there. Um, But the CEOs of Australian listed companies, that's only running about 10%. So money management is running at about the same level as female chief executive officers. Mm. Um, This is, you know, is that a problem? Um, and I, I think it is uh, partly because there's a lot of research that shows that um, cognitive diversity gets you better outcomes. So if everyone managing money all comes from the same background uh, and you know all has the same characteristics, um, then you're probably leaving money on the table for unit holders. Um, but then there's also just that it's a great job. Mm. Um, it's stressful and, uh, you know, it does... Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure because you, you know, you're always trying to outperform a market that is moving all the time. But it's so interesting. It's basically the study of change and disruption. You know, the world is not static. So, um, you know, the companies that I'm looking at investing today, um, some of them are the same as the ones I looked at ten years ago. You know, you still got BHP and CBA, and you know, very and we'll many. We'll talk of them. about that, you evil person. Yes, I know they're. they're yeah, I've got to watch myself there. Um, but there's a lot of, of um, new companies coming in all the time, new innovation, uh, companies doing things better, delivering more value. And when you're investing, you get a ringside seat at all of that. When I go to talk to young women about careers in finance, you know, they look at me like I'm, you know, uh, suggesting a, a career in some nefarious illegal activity. You know, it's just, I think the Wolf of Wall Street has a lot to answer for. That's the kind of, uh, you know, perception that I think especially, um, you know, if you think about high school girls trying to decide what to do in university and where to aim for, uh, it's totally socially acceptable for boys to say, oh, I want to do a finance degree. I want to go into finance. I think um, girls feel like that's not really socially acceptable. And even if they wanted to, they might not tell their friends about it. Um, and I think that's really a shame. The industry um, has portrayed itself as a career for people who are greedy and um, not everyone um, but I think I think there's a bit of a caricature about the industry like that um, whereas actually finance is about intermediation it's about solving problems so you've got a retiree who's got money but needs to get a return on it and then you've got someone just starting out who wants to buy a house but doesn't have the money finance is the connecting of people with surplus funds with people who need funds, and then the generating of a return to make that work. That's financial intermediation. It is solving problems in the community, and that is a very worthwhile career to have and something that women should be a part of and that that girls should aspire to. Mm. So if there was someone like, oh, I want to leave school and or I I want to maybe retrain and she's thinking, oh, how do I get into a, a fund manager type world like Cade? Like, would you say go and do, you know, economics? Like, do you need to know the macro stuff? Like, Okay. So, 
uh, I would say if you if you want to go down that path and you it's a retraining situation, so you've already done mm. a degree or something, go do a CFA. The CFA, Certified uh, Financial Analyst, um, it's rigorous, it's hard, it's tough. You do it, it means something. And if you do it on your own time and your spare time, um, then uh, potential employers will be impressed by that. That's number one. Uh, number two, start looking at stocks and you don't even have to invest real money, but keep a paper portfolio. So, you know, spend the time looking, you know, you, you come across a stock, if it's interesting, research it, go to the ASX website, pull off the things that they've disclosed, um, have a think about valuation, how, how would you think about what this is worth, and then decide if you would buy or sell it, and then make a note of that and the price. And then track that, you know, go back six months later and say, you know, you said that you would buy it, did the, the shares actually go up or did they go down? Mm. What did you learn about that? So do your own investing, develop a track record, even if it's not real money, even if it's just paper money, um, because there's a lot about this you learn experientially and so you can't expect to do all of that on someone else's time. You've got to do some of that on your own time. And the third thing is buy a subscription to The Economist and read it. It is, uh, you know, here's, here's my little plug. Um, it is my, you know, best go-to source of um, everything that's going on in the world and plus economics and finance, but it only comes out once a week, so you only have to, you know, read bits of it. Um, I think that that uh, in, is an investment into yourself to um, just educate yourself about the world of finance. There's a there's an economic, a finance and economic section and a business section. If you read, you know, each of those uh, every week for a year, um, you'll be pretty well educated. I'm actually on the website now. I'm going to do that because I want to learn more myself. Mm. And, you know, I pay for the Australian Financial Review because I get a bit of a pulse check of what's on the ground in Australia. And, um, you know, but this stuff, I'm just having a look here. It's, um, yeah, it's $4.75 a year for the subscription. That, you know, the amount of stuff that you could learn if you read that once a week... So this is it, right? If you if you think you might like a career like this, what you're talking about is investing. And investing is about making a choice to choose one thing over another. So if you buy an Economist subscription and spend an hour or two a week reading it, that's a choice, right? You're choosing not to buy a couple of pairs of shoes and you're choosing not to watch a couple of things on Netflix every week. Um, to me, that's a, that's a worthwhile investment in yourself, uh, in your capability, in your career, um, but you know that's a, that's an investment decision that you know everyone's got to everyone's got to think about. That's such good uh, advice, isn't it? Like because it is an investment, and I honestly think, Kate, like the best investment that we can make, particularly if you're under thirty listening to this, but at any age, is into yourself because your human capital will give you a better return than Kate's portfolio of two percent above the market. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. Investing in yourself is key. And um, it can really differentiate you when you talk to potential employers, if you are educated about the world, and if you can refer to things that are going on. Topical finger on the pulse. Yeah. Yeah. That's such great advice that. So yeah, we just want to say out loud that we support women in financial services and in finance and in life, I guess. Look, there's no there's no reason that women can't be the equal of men in the investing world. There is literally no reason. There are barriers. It's hard. The early years of your career are generally also going to be your years when you're having young kids. And I got to say, you know, those were those were some full on years when my kids were little. Now they're teenagers. It gets a bit easier. Um, but you know, that's not a reason not to do it. And so we we really need to see more women go into this area and, and get that gradual shift so that 
um, the investors in these funds and these products are having their money managed by a diverse team. Awesome. Okay, we've got about 20 minutes left. Let's talk about all the things. So we're going to move through some basic housekeeping type things around ESG. So elevator pitch, what is ESG? Okay. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. So when you're an investor in a share, you get the vote, the right to vote on things at the AGM, which is the annual general meeting. So the bare minimum of discharging your duties as a shareholder is to actually, you know, read those things and vote on them. And that's things like who should be on the board, um, how much should they pay management, is that appropriate, um, and then other aspects about how the board is running the company. So the institutional funds management community globally have been doing this, you know, as long as it's been around. Um, you own the shares, you vote on the shares. That was really focused on the G bit which was governance. So what you've seen in really the last 10 years is the E and the S become much more prominent. Now, E um, is not only so the environment, not only things like from mining company, are they rehabilitating their mines or are they just leaving a big empty hole in the ground? Um, that is now um, really being surpassed by decarbonisation. Uh, climate change is real and the only way we're going to get to abating carbon is individual companies have to decarbonize their operations and they have to come up with new ways of doing things in a, a low carbon way. So that whole decarbonization piece is now huge on the E side. On the S side, um, we're getting a lot of things. This is social. So this is things like modern slavery. So if you're a retailer in Australia and you're buying, uh, you're selling clothing, do you know if that clothing was made by kids in forced labor in a sweatshop somewhere? Do you know? Have you verified it? Have you done the audit? Have you asked the question? So um, things like modern slavery and then really uh, other other aspects that are also important in society uh, like discrimination, harassment, whistleblower policies, all of those kinds of things. So things around human capital, are you paying your people appropriately or you know, do you not have the systems in place to do that? Um, so ESG is now investors putting pressure on companies to lift their game. Love it. Yeah, and in the Facebook group, Emil uh, de Fries, I think that's how I pronounce your name. I'm sorry if it isn't. Um, they said in a, a, a Facebook group or someone like that um, about environmental slash ethical, um, you know, how to make the most out of it. And someone answered it. You're investing to make money, aren't you? Respectfully, Morality and money seldom have a place in the same investment portfolio. So my question following that... Disagree. Yeah, why is ESG necessary? <laughs> okay, so um, most people would have some sense of, of things that they want to back and things that they don't. So, for example, um, do you want your retirement savings invested in tobacco companies? Are you okay with that or are you not okay? Most people would have a sense one way or the other. Let me swing it around a bit, though. So let's go back to the 1950s. Uh, there was a lot of mining going on in Australia, in West Australia, and there was a really high fatality rate. And we all went, well, that's just the way it is. You know, heavy industry, mining, it's dangerous, dirty work. Cost of business. Yeah, of course people are going to get killed when they go to work. And then at some point the community went, you know, actually we can do better than that. So what followed was what was called the safety revolution which was um, the community put pressure on heavy industry, so miners and manufacturers, saying you need to improve, you need to lift your game. And um, then boards said to management, 
okay, we'll figure out how to do this. And management didn't come back and say, oh, yeah, like I can reduce fatalities, but, you know, we're just not going to be profitable. So let's not do that or we want to be profitable. No. The way business works is innovation, ingenuity. We find new ways to do things, right? So companies figured out how to put in place different processes, um, you know, different testing, different lockout procedures, all of the things that now mean that the fatality rate has plummeted. Right, so companies are always having to lift their games. The better companies are the ones that see that proactively and get ahead of it. The worst ones are the ones that drag their heels and then end up getting investigated and fined by the government, right? That has bad impacts for shareholders. So I would argue that when you're investing, the overlap between money returns and morality is that when you invest in companies that are trying to be ahead of the curve, trying to lift their game ahead of their competitors, they're the ones who are also probably ahead of the game on other aspects, who are also out competing in other ways and are going to generate better returns. So now we're asking companies to internalize not their fatality rate, but their carbon emissions. There are some of them that are going to say, oh, not my problem. Shareholders don't care about that. But increasingly, the weight of money, institutional money, right? So there are now trillions of dollars. So about about half of the global institutional money management industry recently signed up to something called GFANS, um, which is uh, money committed to helping with decarbonization. So the weight of money is now behind companies who are trying to get onto this decarbonization. And that means that the companies who aren't tackling their emissions are going to get left behind. So increasingly, there's a, a really nice overlap. Better run companies are doing the right thing, tackling their emissions, and investors are rewarding them for that, and their share prices are going up. This is the way capitalism should work, that you know, companies, good companies get rewarded. How can ESG be most effective? This is a really interesting question, right? So you say, I'm going to, you know, I've got money in my super, it's my money, but it's going to sit there being invested for decades. I want it to do some good. I, you know, I don't want to just eke out the very best return. While it's there, I want it to be a force for good. Okay, that's great. How do you do it? There's at least two different approaches, right? One is you say the best way is to have a low carbon portfolio. So I'll go find an ETF or an active approach that screens out all of the high emitters. Now, what that means practically is that that fund won't own any miners, won't own any cement companies, uh, won't own any steel companies, um, might not own transport or airlines. Um, It's going to own a lot of tech, a lot of healthcare and a lot of finance, i.e. all the businesses are inherently low emitters to begin with. Okay, that's great. You feel really good. You've got a low carbon portfolio. Have you done anything? Does, Does that portfolio do anything to help the world decarbonize? So we take a different view. We take a view that ultimately, if you're trying to have your money be a force for good to deliver the low carbon world that you want to live in in the future, then you want a low carbon world. And it's not necessarily, and in fact, probably not the same thing as a low carbon portfolio. Let me explain why. The estimates are that the cost to decarbonize is about US $100 trillion. Now, um, for reference, um, the Australian economy, uh, you know, runs about $2 trillion, a bit less, right? So uh, the US economy runs about $21 trillion. So we're saying take every bit of economic activity in the US for, uh, you know, a, a long time, five years, and do nothing but decarbonise, 
and that's the minimum required, right? This is, I'm just trying to give you, it's, it's an extraordinarily high number, right? So it might actually be one and a half times as much. It might be 150 trillion. So this is expensive, but we need to do this. So it really matters that we do it efficiently. So whilst we all get excited about a new company that comes up with some new technology or a company that says, I'm, I'm going to roll out some solar farms, that's actually not going to be the most efficient way to do it. The most efficient way is going to be what we call brownfields, which is kind of using companies that are already there. So a company that's got a gas pipeline, ooh, boo, hiss, gas, natural gas, carbon polluting, that gas pipeline can be repurposed to hydrogen much more cheaply than just writing it off and developing a whole new gas, a hydrogen pipeline, right? So it's repurposing of existing assets. And um, a, a great example here in Australia is a company called Santos. Uh, they um, uh, produce natural gas out of the Cooper Basin in South Australia. So 100% of their revenue is selling hydrocarbons. It's dirty. There's no way around it. But because um, of an accident of history, the gas that comes out is really high in CO2. So they've always stripped that off and re-injected it to increase the pressure of the reservoir. So Santos just happens to be a global leader already in carbon capture and storage. Now, they're not uh, capturing carbon from, uh, you know, the, the gas that they're selling, but that board has recognised what the future is, that in 20 or 30 years, there's not really much business to be made in being a gas producer, but there's a huge opportunity to be a direct air capture company, maybe a carbon capture and storage company, maybe do some green hydrogen, do your electrolysis, maybe capture some CO2, put it back in. That reservoir can hold an enormous amount of CO2. And there are a lot of things like steel making that are still going to be inherently CO2 um, producing and will need to do some uh, carbon capture and, and storage. So Santos is really dirty now but has the potential to be a huge global part of the solution in the future, right? So we think our role is to invest with a company like that and support it to help change the world rather than just write it off and say, you're dirty now. If you're going to be clean in the future, well, we don't care. You're dirty now and that's bad. Is that impact investing or is impact investing, I'm only going to buy the wind portfolio? Yeah, pretty much impact investing is I'm only going to buy new innovative greenfield startups. Where you're of the view, well, we want to actually make a change. Let's have a freaking seat at the table yep. and have some authority yep. if we can in this now, look, space. I'm not anti the green startups, right? There's, there's going to be amazing businesses come out there. And in my fund, some of those smaller positions are a couple of really interesting green tech companies, mm. right, that are going to be part of the solution. But they're really early stage. And to be honest, they're really highly priced right now because there's so few of them and everyone's just piling into them. So the investment returns there might actually not be so great. Whereas, um, you know, everyone hates energy companies right now because they're perceived to be dirty. If they pull this off and, and do a pivot into something green, there could actually be really good returns from, from that change in investor sentiment. Ange McCullough says... I was under the impression that where we invest our money doesn't do anything for the business we invest in. So it would strictly be a returns-based decision. But given more people are ethically minded these days, it's probably likely those businesses will succeed and give good returns in the long run, maybe. Okay, um, let me yeah, let me let me let me explain a that. Bit there, yeah. Okay, so when when I go buy and buy a share um, it's like anything, it's supply and demand. In fact, it's, it's always just the purest supply and demand. So if I go in and say, I want to buy 
uh, you know, $2 million worth of this, then that buying pressure will put upwards pressure on that share price. What that means for the company is a company with a higher share price could then say, look, um, I need to raise some capital, some fresh capital from the market to fund this new green decarbonizing initiative. If they do it off of a high share price, then their cost of capital is lower. It's cheaper for them to do it. If everyone hates them and the share price is low, that actually makes it more expensive. So the buying and selling pressure of investment does actually impact the companies you invest in. It really does because companies that are more highly bought after, sought after and have a higher share price can raise money more cheaply to do the things they need to do. It does. Your investment does actually have an impact on the company. And just kind of following on for that, Christy Murray says, does investment in ethical businesses help encourage more businesses to change their practices? So I guess if businesses are looking like all the money going to the clean portfolios and the clean companies, would businesses say, well, we better do better because over the fence they're doing better or is it more well we think on balance if we I don't know well it, it is confusing right so yeah. tobacco companies actually have been great investments so you'll mm. think oh the ultimate sin stock you know terrible businesses their product is addictive and kills people mm. um, and yet they got so um, unloved that then after that they had really regular fa- cash flows because people are addicted to their product mm. and so they actually delivered good returns so you know you can get returns from sin stocks but let me let me kind of take another perspective on that um, last year when COVID started impacting um, and government started to do support programs we took a view that the community just would not would not be able to make sense of companies that took government support and then paid executive bonuses. So we wrote to all the companies globally that we have ownership of, and we said to them, hey, heads up, if you take a government support program of whatever form in your country, and then you pay executive bonuses, we will vote against, I don't know, vote against your chairman, vote against your room report, whatever it is to vote, to vote against. And then in Australia, um, you know, there were companies who said, oh, but we did all this other good stuff. And, you know, and we said, yeah, but we just think the community, it doesn't make sense. Why would you take JobKeeper and then pay, a, you know, a million dollar bonus to your CEO? It doesn't make sense to the community. And we voted against the REM report. Mm. So, um, they, you know, they, they don't like that. They, they want investor support. Um, and because we're active managers, so here's another difference. If we were passive ETFs and we go to them and say, look, it, you know, if you do this, we'll sell our shares. Well, you can't do that. If you're passive, your investment decision is just, you know, set by what's in the index. We're active um, and we tend to be long-term holders. So we build up a lot of credibility. So they want to hear what we have to say. They don't want to disappoint us. They don't want us to sell their shares. We have influence and we can get them to lift their game. And so, um, you know, we had a role to play in getting some of these companies to pay it back because initially they were saying, but we can't even pay it back. And then enough companies kind of went to Treasury and said, hey, we'd like to be able to pay it back. And Treasury went, oh, okay, let me figure out how to let you do that. And then once there was a way to pay it back, we could say, well, okay, if you've paid bonuses, because they said, well, we didn't know how bad COVID would be, so we took JobKeeper. Turns out it wasn't so bad, so we paid bonuses. We said, okay, if it wasn't that bad, pay back your JobKeeper. Mm. And, and a range of them did. So we can increasingly have a role to play in shifting corporate behaviour. Ella Hannon, hey Ella, how are you? Um, I know her. She has a good question that I've always wondered about. And in my book, I didn't go there because I didn't know enough about it, but I was a bit skeptical of me. She says, is there more costs involved creating an ethical ETF? And if so, 
what are the extra costs? Because my whole thing looking at some of these different fund managers will run an Aussie shares ETF, bugger all price index fund. We'll run an index um, ETF that's clean, that's ethical or whatever, still tracking an index, but five times the price. Do you think on balance, and we're not even talking about any companies because I really can't think of any, but conceptually, do you think there is maybe some legitimate gouging of this space or is there a legitimate costs in creating an index that screens deeper? Yeah, so there are definitely costs. Um, you can buy in ratings, so you can do it pretty cheaply. But our experience is that a lot of those systematic ratings are backwards looking and can be not that helpful. So, for example, you could get a small telecoms company rated very badly. And when you go in and look, it's because they're so busy doing their business and they don't really have many emissions, so they haven't filled out all the forms. So the survey says, oh, well, this is blank, so we'll rate them badly. Well, it's just because they're really focused on running their business. Now, increasingly, we're encouraging everyone to fill out the forms, even if they are inherently a low emitter. But you do get these anomalies where the data is is can be pretty rubbish. If you say, well, I don't want to do an automated approach, then the alternative is you've got to hire analysts who trawl through these things and talk to the companies and spend a lot of time on it. That can be expensive. Now, there's scale. So you do that once and then it depends on how much money you have in that ETF because you don't have to hire a person, you know, for every million dollars in the ETF. You just got to do it once. So the more money you get. So partly the higher fees reflect the lower scale mm. that they don't have as much money. But then what you'd like to see is you'd like to see the, the fees go down over time as the the money in the strategy goes up and, you know, the, we'll wait to see if that happens. Hypothetically, if there was a thematic ETF over here and there's been an index that's been created, so it's an index ETF, yeah. it's kind of an active thing because they've actively chosen what we want in this index. Yes and no. So there are some like dividend strategies where it's just a, you set up a series of rules. Mm. So every company that is like this or the top the top 20 companies who meet these criteria, right? And so that's kind of an automated algorithmically derived, even, even it can be a thematic basket. It can be, you know, fairly automated. Um, we do thematic ETFs, but ours are very active where we've got, you know, kind of real people sitting there thinking this through. Um, and, uh, you know, so um, we want to make sure that, that the stocks that we put in there really make sense to have in there. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a continuum there. You mm. can, a thematic ETF could be, could be active or could be fairly automated. Yeah. In our final moments, uh, because it is right on 11 and I need to let you go, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say, comment, anything in particular? I don't I think care. just touching on, touching on the, the ESG side of things and the decarbonisation. Um, I am really passionate about this, but I think one thing that is, is sadly not understood is uh, it's very easy to think, oh, look, there are coal mining companies out there Coal is very dirty and polluting. Uh, it's just carbon. Um, therefore, mining is bad. And I just really want to hit that on the head, right? If you think about it, what is required to decarbonize is a whole lot of solar panels and wind farms and electric vehicles and batteries, all of that stuff. What is all that stuff made of? Hello, it's all made of metals. So BHP did a review of saying, if you're going to decarbonize, 
How much metals production do you need? And for some things like nickel, the world needs to produce three to four times as much nickel over the next 30 years as it has produced over the last 30 years. And if we don't do that, we simply cannot decarbonize. You just literally cannot create the stuff that you will need to do things in a low carbon way. So in the race to decarbonize, mining is our friend and Australia is a big miner. And that means currently that mining has big emissions, but that doesn't mean it has to always. So, you know, we need to we need to push the miners to invest in low carbon technologies. And instead of doing diesel haul trucks, they're going to have to do electrified conveyor belts and things like that. They're going to have to invest to get there, but they can and they must. So if you care about the planet, you actually should be really pro-mining. And mm-hmm. I know that's counterintuitive, but that's just it, it's just a reality. Because you've got, um, you know, around 6% of your money in BHP in the portfolio. Um, and I've got, you know, several other miners as well. Yeah, so BHP, they announced that they were getting out of coal. Yes, um, and, and keep in mind also, there's two kinds of coal. There's thermal coal, which gets burned in power plants, um, which is the number one source of power generation in the world today. And if it weren't for carbon emissions and, and other nasties that come with it, you know, it's cheap, it's reliable, you know, coal is a great power source except for all the pollution and carbon. So um, thermal coal, the use of that to drive power needs to dramatically reduce as soon as we possibly can. The other sort of coal is metallurgical coal, and that's used to create steel. And again, all of those wind farms, all of those solar panels, they're made from steel. Now, there are some new technologies emerging to create steel without the use of metallurgical coal, um, but it's hard to, you know, they're going to be difficult to scale up. They're going to be incredibly expensive. So metallurgical coal has a place because you can you can do um, carbon capture and storage. So you can, you know, you just decarbonize the steelmaking process in another way. You still use the metallurgical coal, but you capture the carbon and deal with it that way. So metallurgical coal um, has a, a much longer life um, than, than thermal coal. So first you've got to differentiate that. Um, but, you know, all, all mining commodities currently, you know, it's, it's very energy intensive. And so unless you're powering it, you know, with a whole bunch of solar panels, then, you know, you're probably powering it with a lot of diesel mm. uh, and that has a lot of emissions. So all, um, you know, all mining operations need to go through a decarbonisation process. Are you long on, and I know it's your IP and you probably can't go too deep, but like, are you long in a bit of everything other than coal and, um, I don't know. So like you've, well, I, I, I guess I'm trying to say, are you putting everything on hydrogen or are you going solar or you're, or are you messing around a bit in, you know, uranium? Like, so when it comes to decarbonization, you know, we tend to we tend to want to say, oh, is it going to be through carbon capture and storage, or is it going to be through hydrogen? And to me, the really obvious answer is all of them, mm. all of them. Mm. Right? There, we don't need to pick winners. Everyone's just got to do everything, and maybe some things will end up being more widely deployed than others. But the only way we're going to get to net zero is if we just throw everything at this. So um, there are uh, a couple of pure play coal companies listed in Australia. I don't own them. I don't think the future for those business models is great. I just, who's going to want to buy coal, you know, in a couple of decades? So uh, I, I, I don't find them compelling as investments. However, things like nickel, where you need that huge ramp up in demand and in supply, those I think have, you know, really attractive futures. And the difference with the pure pay pure play coal companies, there's no point you owning them and having a vote because they've got coal or coal. Like it's not as if they can pivot. 
easily. Yeah, and and I think that's a difference with something like Santos, yeah. which today is all selling hydrocarbons, but does have a really good pathway to pivot into a, a hydrogen mm. type future. So that's what we're looking for. We do a specific thing called a climate alignment rating, which is to assess how close a company is to achieving net zero. And in our portfolios, we're dialing it up so that by the time we get to 2050, every company owned in any of our portfolios is going to have to be already achieving net zero. The Australian government, and again, we will finish here, but um, there really hasn't been any decent climate. I guess I'm saying there's been no certainty over the last 20 years coming out of the Australian government for businesses and the climate, has there? Well, look, I mean, you can put that on the government, but that comes back to the Australian people and how we vote. Yeah. Right. And so there are a lot of people in areas where the industry to date um, has been based on carbon-intensive industries. Um, but I was listening to a podcast uh, with Andrew Bragg and talking about this, and you asked him, you know, is the answer to have a universal basic in- income? And he said, no, the answer is to have new industries mm. in those areas. Um, and so the question is, uh, how do you how do you And that's deal a with hard this? sell, though. But how do you deal yeah. with this in an equitable way? Mm. Um, we do need to reduce our emissions as a nation, um, the government is going down the path of trying to create the incentive structure to get those new industries into those areas of Australia so that we can decarbonise without leaving big communities behind and creating a disparity of haves and have-nots. So there's different there's different ways to get there. Um, you can you can kind of have a carrot or a stick, and now government is, is trying to do much more of the carrot and, and much less of the stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Hey, we will leave it right there. Um, Kate Howitt from Fidelity International. Thank you so much for joining us on My Millennial Money. And I'm sure I'll ask everyone right now, if you like what Kate had to say, let us know. I'll pass it on to Kate and you're welcome back on the show anytime. Super fun. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.